Well, I invite you to take your Bibles again and turn with me for one final time in preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20 is where we'll be at this morning. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20. If you have a Bible, take it and stand up in your living room or stand up where you're at if you are able to and if you'd like to. And Let's remind ourselves that this is God's holy word. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20 says this. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Sometimes when I'm at home, uh, my kids, my older ones anyway, give each other math problems they, uh, they don't do that too often but every once in a while they do because they're trying to challenge each other and how, how much one of them knows more than the other one so if kids that are here this morning listening my kids or anybody else's kids I'm going to give you a math problem here at the beginning of the service and you can work on it real quick and I'll come back to it in just a few minutes so you get you a piece of paper and write this down or think about it um, there's about on an average Sunday when we're able to meet together about 200 to 220 people that meet here on a Sunday morning alright so let's just say 220 on an on a average Sunday good Sunday 220 people and I what if one out of 12 people couldn't be here on, on a given Sunday one out of 12 people and we have an average of 220 people then how many people would not be here did that question make sense 220 people, if one out of 12 would not be here the next time we met together, then how many people would not be here? All right, you, you work on that for a minute, but don't work on it too long, because that's not the purpose of doing math this morning, all right? Well, while you're thinking about that, i ask you this question. It's a question that's on a lot of people's minds right now as you're looking at people going to the beaches of Jacksonville. Is it time to leave our homes? Is it time to leave our homes? And whether that be at Liberty Baptist Church in Wartburg, Tennessee, where I grew up, or Kansas City, uh, Oakwood Baptist Church, where I used to pastor, or the Baptist Church in Sarajevo, where if you're under 18 or over 65, you literally cannot leave your home at all for the past several weeks. That's a question a lot of people ask. Is it time to leave our homes? Well, that seems to be a very pressing question a lot of people have to, are, are asking. And right now we're entrusting our leaders to answer that, particularly our governor here in Illinois. But there's a more pressing question and a more pressing reminder that this passage of Scripture calls us to. And it really answers the question for us, and it tells us that it is time to leave our homes. 
And what we mean by that, of course, when we look at the passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 28, is it's time to leave our homes in relation to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's always time. It's high been time. It's long been time. It's always time to leave our homes. Whether that be physically or that be figuratively right now, while we seek to submit to the government, it is always time to leave our homes. It's always time to leave our comfort zones to make disciples of all nations. It was time for the disciples in this passage of Scripture to leave their homes on a more permanent basis. Just look at your Bible here and notice the somewhat depleted group of disciples. Look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Now I'm going to revisit my math question right now. What number did you come up with based on 220? One out of 12 didn't come. Then how many people wouldn't be here? Now I came up with 18, am I right? Miss Marshall over here shaking her head saying right. So about 18. So can you imagine when we're able to finally meet together once again here on Sunday mornings that we find out 18 people, you know, a lot of people probably won't be able to come back that first Sunday for, for different health concerns. We understand that. But let's just assume that everyone was able to, and we find out 18 people are, are not here, and they're not just here out of health concerns, but when we find out, we go to our Sunday school class, and we find out our Sunday school teacher says so-and-so is not here, and they're not here because they're concerned about their health. They're not here because they no longer believe in Jesus. What? I mean, that would be absolutely shocking. But then we walk down the hallway on the way to the activity center and we find somebody else that says, so-and-so's not here today. Well, did you hear? They're not just concerned about health concerns. They're, here, they're not here because they are not ever coming back. And imagine if that kind of conversation were repeated 18 times on a Sunday morning. That 18 of us were not just not coming back today, but we're not coming back ever Think of how that would rattle us, how that would disturb us. And I mentioned that to put yourselves, of course, in the shoes of the disciples. For one of their 12, may not seem like a big deal, one, well, just one, but one out of 12 was gone. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, one of their own, one who had followed Christ, Judas, was gone and was not ever coming back. In fact, he was a false convert. For those who say they no longer are going to follow Christ were never true followers of Christ to begin with. So you imagine, and I mentioned that simply to put ourselves in the shoes of the, of the disciples. The eleven disciples went to Galilee. And they're going to this place called Galilee perhaps to reminisce on to some extent on how they first had met Jesus turn with me in Matthew chapter 4 quickly Matthew chapter 4 and you can read here in Matthew chapter 4 about where Jesus had first met the disciples it's in Matthew chapter 4 at Galilee where Jesus begins his public ministry he's been baptized by John the Baptist just north of Galilee in the Jordan River and he's went into the wilderness of and been tempted and come out victoriously and he's began his public ministry and he's began to preach the gospel and it says in Matthew chapter 4 verse 12 now when they had heard that John had been arrested he withdrew into Galilee 
And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Notice verse 14. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness has seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So it's at Galilee, where Jesus begins His public ministry. And He begins to preach the gospel in fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah had said would happen upon that land of Galilee, where Gentiles lived as well. That this gospel of the kingdom would go not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles. And next in the passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, look at it. Notice what your Bible says. Well, walking by the Sea of Galilee. See, it's the 11 disciples going back to Galilee to meet the resurrected Christ. How their minds may have traveled back to this episode where Jesus had been preaching the gospel in Galilee. John the Baptist had been preaching the gospel in Galilee and had baptized them, had baptized Jesus. And now in verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And oh, how their minds on the day that Jesus told them that must have swirled. We can only imagine what they realized or, or, or had in mind about what being fishers of men really meant. But now they're on their way back to Galilee. Not 12, but 11. They're on their way back to Galilee where he had first commissioned him to be fishers of men. Where they had left their nets and followed Jesus and others as well. John and James and the other disciples eventually. They're going to Galilee where miracles had been witnessed by those 11 disciples. And now turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. As they went along with Jesus, watching Him walk on water, watching Him cast out demons, watching Him raise up people who had been crippled, they traveled a little north of Galilee one time to a place called Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16. And it's in Matthew chapter 16 that He turns to the twelve disciples at that time. He turns to the twelve disciples at that time. And in chapter 16, verse 15, there's a great question Jesus asked them. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And one of those fishermen who were first called at Galilee, one of those presumptuous fishermen about his own great faith, we'll find later in the Gospel of Matthew, right? One who will deny him three times. But at that time, Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Simon Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He got it right. Because it says in the next verse that God had revealed it to him. He didn't come up with flesh and blood. He didn't come up with that on his own. And then Jesus makes a great promise. Not just to Peter, but to the other disciples. Because Peter's speaking on their behalf. They all profess this. And Jesus makes a great promise in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, Jesus says. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here are these 12 disciples. 
The twelve from Galilee. And Jesus looks upon them and says, I will build my church upon these people. And then this is all followed by two puzzling and disturbing predictions. Look at verse 21 in Matthew chapter 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And presumptuous Peter speaks up and says, Far from it, far be it from you, from this happening, Lord. This will never happen. (laughs) Oh, how they may have recalled that incident as the eleven disciples were walking back to Galilee to meet the resurrected Christ who did die and who had been raised from the grave. This will never happen. Later he would say, Oh, Though I'll leave you, I will never leave you. And it's it's these disciples, he's going to build, this is the rock, this is the church. These are the ones that he's going to build his church upon. Then Jesus makes another somewhat mysterious and puzzling and certainly disturbing statement to them in verse 24. After he rebukes Peter and calls him the devil. Get behind me, Satan. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you're going to follow me, I told you, leave your nets. In Galilee, when we first met, leave your nets, come follow me. If you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. It's not going to be a bed of roses. It's not going to be health and wealth and prosperity. There's going to be a cross before there's glory. So if anybody's going to follow me, be a true follower, this must take place. And now back to Matthew 28. They're back in Galilee. Do you see the 11 disciples? How their minds must have thought about those days earlier with Jesus in Galilee. Those great promises. Those great predictions. And now thinking of some of their own great failures. For it wasn't just Peter that denied Jesus three times. But all the disciples. All the eleven had fled Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. He had fled the the Romans, and fled away from Jesus. Now they're back in Galilee, and one of them's missing. Could this be the rock, the church? Then look how they're described in Matthew chapter 18, or 28, chapter 28, verse 17. Look at their response. And When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. It could be that There were other disciples besides the 11 that were present. And they could be the ones that were doubting because by this time, we read in the Gospel of John, we read in the Gospel of Mark, we read in the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus had already appeared to the disciples, including Thomas, before they ever went to Galilee, and they knew that he had risen from the dead. So perhaps the 11 are called out for being the ones worshiping here, and it's the others who have not yet seen him that are doubting. Hesitant is how some 
interpreters look at this word hesitant to believe this could possibly be true or hesitant because they continuing to follow him means that they are going to have to carry a cross and they're going to suffer and hesitant because of the implications of what it means going to follow Christ. Here they are, worshiping, but some doubting, some hesitant. So what will Jesus say to this mixed group of believers, worshipers, and doubters? Verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he looks at these eleven This depleted group, perhaps it's them, perhaps it's those with them. Some of these are worshiping, some of them are doubting. This diverse group, diverse in faith. And he says to them, all authority has been given to me. That's the word to them. Now why does Jesus say this? If you'll notice in the Gospel of Matthew... Matthew doesn't mention anything about any of the resurrection appearances directly to the disciples up to this point, the 11 disciples. Nothing. Like I said, John, Mark, Luke, you can read about that. But Matthew, he's not interested in that because God's not told him to write those things down. Matthew is not interested in giving evidence about how the disciples have directly witnessed Jesus' appearance. Neither is Matthew interested in by saying in verse 18, all authority has been given to the disciples Matthew's interest here is not entirely focused on providing encouragement to the disciples when Jesus says all authority has been given. So you got some worshiping, some doubting. Jesus says, don't doubt, don't worry, all authority has been given to me. That's not why Jesus says that. It's not to encourage them. He says all authority has been given to me because look at your Bible in verse 19. Notice what your Bible says. Verse 18 says, all authority has been given, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Therefore, in verse 19, is why authority is there in verse 18. God's not so much interested here about emphasizing the direct evidence given to the disciples or encouraging these weak disciples in faith. His purpose in telling them that He has all authority is to commission the disciples. He's here to tell the disciples it's time to make disciples and to make disciples of all nations. And to make disciples of all nations, you've got to go. So for three years, they'd been following Jesus. They had left their homes in Galilee and traveled to Jerusalem, but mainly in Galilee, they'd spent most of that time. But now, back in Galilee, Jesus is telling them, Boys, go and make disciples of all nations. And if they're going to go and make disciples of all nations then it's time for them to leave their homes permanently. And brothers and sisters, this commission is for us. It is time for us to leave our homes. Even in the middle of a pandemic, while the government's asking us to stay at home, the closing words of the Gospel of Matthew are a reminder that it is always time to leave our homes, whether physically or figuratively, so that we may fulfill the Great Commission. And of course, as we read the Gospel of, or the book of Acts, we read the New Testament letters, we see that this is what the disciples did, did they not? 
They left their homes. They went to all nations. They preached the gospel and they were martyred for it. They were killed for their faith in Christ. What compelled and sustained them to leave their homes? What compelled and sustained them is what compels and sustains us to leave our homes. Literally, like Brandon and Crystal Leach, who are now in the United States on furlough, but have left their homes physically to go to Argentina. Or figuratively, by leaving our, the, the home of our comfort zone. What compels and sustains us? That we might make disciples of all nations. Well, there's three compelling reasons in these verses I want to quickly look at now with the remainder of time. Three reasons why it is time for us to leave our homes and make disciples of all nations. Number one, we believe Jesus is always in control. Amen. How many times in the past few weeks have you talked to someone on the phone or saw a post on social media between another believer, maybe a conversation, and somebody has said, well, we just know this, the Lord's in control. And the person responded to third believer, amen, that's right. The Lord's in control. We say it perhaps so often that it almost may seem trite. But the first thing that Jesus wants his church to know as they fulfill this main focus of the church, the main focus of us is to make disciples. The first thing he says, all authority has been given to me. I am in control. Total control. One of the compelling reasons for us to always be ready to leave our homes, to make disciples of all nations, is because we believe Jesus is always in control. How many times have we seen, even in the past few days, on television, on the news, governors, president, other leaders debating about who's in control? Whose decision is it to make about when it is time to leave our homes? Such silliness and bickering and back and forth. Squibbling over issues of authority. Forgetting sometimes that the authority given to our leaders was given to them because of our Constitution and because people that voted for them. But ultimately that authority given to them was given to them by God. According to Romans chapter 13. Let me remind you this morning. That Jesus has all authority. He is our king. He has given us marching orders. Question may come to mind here as we look at this verse in verse 19. Didn't Jesus already have all authority? Because it says, all authority in verse 18, in heaven and on earth, it's a cosmic authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Doesn't he have that authority by nature of who he is? He's God the Son. The Gospel of Matthew already shows us that Jesus has all authority. Remember what he says to the paralytic. 
The man that was lowered through the Galilean hut as the crowd gathered around. And these four men looking down at Jesus are lowering their friend. And as they lower their friend down into the midst, and the crowd says, oh, now we're going to get to see a miracle. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He didn't do a miracle. He said, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and Pharisees that are watching think to themselves, blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Oh, that's the point, isn't it? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he says to the paralytic, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, arise, take up your pallet, and walk. And he does. And they say to themselves, we've never seen anything like this. That's because he has all authority. He always had authority. All authority. So what does the Bible say here when he's been given all authority? Before the foundation of the world, God the Father had planned to place all things under Jesus' feet. All things cosmically. Death, Satan, everything defeated. This is God's plan to be fulfilled through Jesus. And now, as Ligon Duncan explains, the resurrected Christ stands before his 11 disciples, some worshiping, some doubting, and he says to them, I have delivered. I'm raised. I have delivered. And I have all authority. So these trembling disciples need to know that the one sending them into all the world is all-powerful and has the right to exercise that power in any way he wants to. And when it says he's now been given authority, as D.A. Carson explains, the spheres in which Jesus now exercises absolute authority are not just his earthly ministry on earth, but his spheres have been enlarged to encompass all created things. There will be no more restraint of his divine attributes as he walked on earth this is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 through 14 where Daniel says I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days just think about it the Israelites had longed for the Messiah to come they knew about this prophecy from Daniel this ancient of days who would send his son and was presented before him, it says in Daniel chapter 7, in verse 14 of Daniel 7, it says, And to him, to this one, was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Why is he giving this authority? That all peoples, languages, and nations, not just Jews but Gentiles, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus is standing before the disciples, these 11, and he's saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I have delivered what Daniel said has taken place. So it's time to leave your homes, disciples, and it's time to leave your homes, First Baptist Church believers, because we believe Jesus is always in control. It gives us confidence, doesn't it? Confidence to go and tell people about the gospel. 
confidence when Jesus says to those 11 poor, untrained, powerless disciples, he says to them, I'm going to build my church on you. How's he going to do that? Because Jesus has authority. Jesus said, I will build my church, right? I will bring my sheep. He's the one that does that. Confidence. Confidence that as we go to leave our homes, confidence Jesus always being in control, that he will call in his elect, he will save, he will do his work. Confidence knowing that it's not his will that any should perish, but all come to repentance, that a day in the sight of the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day, so every day that he does not come back, he's intending to bring more sheep into his kingdom, so we leave our homes going, knowing with confidence that the all-authoritative reigning Jesus Christ is going to save somebody else, and it could be your neighbor, it could be your friend, it could be your loved one that you've been crying out to and praying for. Confidence that we must leave our homes because he has all authority and will do his sovereign work. And assurance. Because when we say to one another that tears, it's tears rolling down our faces at times because of a diagnosis or because of a loss of job or because we're just completely lonely. To say to one another, the Lord is in control. And we respond, that's right, brother. Thank you for reminding me. We have assurance that he's always in control. Because Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for those that love him who are called according to his purpose. The Lord Jesus is always in control, who's working all things together for good to those that love him who called according to his purpose. All things. All things means all things. It doesn't leave anything out. All things together for good because he's always in control. And how do we know this? How do we know this? Because the resurrected Jesus who just laid down his life and died for them. That's how we know it. Oh, how we were singing this morning. Our sins there are many, his mercy is more. And I was standing right here and I was looking and I was thinking about, oh, yes, my sins. And I glanced over and I saw this cross. And I was just overcome with emotion at that moment. Our sins are many. My sins are many. But his mercy is more. And why? Look at the cross. The cross. The cross. That's what lets me know my sins are forgiven. That's what lets me know that the one who laid his down his life for my sins is also the one that's going to work all things together for my good. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How shall he not freely with him give us all things? So it's time for us to leave our homes with much confidence and much assurance because Jesus is always in control. And secondly, we must obey all of Jesus' orders. It's time for us to leave our homes because we believe that Jesus is always in control. But secondly, because we must obey all of Jesus' orders, all of his commands. There's been much talk about the flattening of the curve. 
So we all know that terminology now. Social distancing, flattening of the curve, apex. All those things are now in our, etched in our vocabulary throughout the rest of our lives probably. The flattening of the curve, of the curve, of the curve, spiritually is climbing. There are not less and less lost people in the world. There are more and more. But there is good news for this devastating, soul-damning condition that all people are in. There is good news that there is a vaccine for the worst thing that could happen to you. There is a cure. There is forgiveness. There is mercy through what Jesus has done and what he has done alone. And that all who would trust alone in what Christ has done will be forgiven. Amen. So we have our stay-at-home orders, and we also have our orders from Scripture that Jesus says here. In relation to the Great Commission, our orders are not to stay at home where it's safe for us and the good of others. But in relation to the Great Commission, our orders are not to stay at home for the good of others. To go and tell others that Christ has risen from the dead. So he says in verse 19, Go therefore. Go and do what? Go and make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The main imperative here, make disciples of all nations. To make disciples of all nations means they must leave their homes. They must go. They must do something. They must be intentional about this. Like this making of all disciples is not going to happen by osmosis. It's not going to happen by having study groups about making disciples or understanding how, what the Greek word is for discipleship. To make disciples has to actually go and do it. This means they've got to leave their homes. In Matthew chapter 10, the disciples, the 12 disciples have been sent out to go just to the Jews, but now they're being sent out to go to all the nations, Jews as well as Gentiles. And this is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, is it not? Look at the stars of the sky, Abraham. I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars of the sky. And then you all the families of the earth should be blessed. And this is what God's doing. This is what's being fulfilled through the resurrected Christ through his church as we go and make disciples of all nations. You think about maybe not so much here in Mount Carmel, but certainly here some. Whenever you see someone who's obviously from a, a different nationality, a different background, who's here for college, or they're here working, they've opened a business. And if you go to major cities, you see that even more, the, the, the multicultural diversity in our nation, that God's bringing the nations here. It reminds me of a statement that Cody Lawrence made one time, a missionary in Chicago. He said, the fact that the nations are here does not make missions more convenient, but it makes obedience more obvious. It makes obedience more obvious that God has brought the nations to us. So I remember being in the military, crawling through, uh, crawling through the sand. It was in basic training, and my drill sergeants were telling us, we all stood in line, and they told us we needed to put our hand ahead in the sand and crawl, low crawl is what they call it. They didn't say it very nicely. Low crawl, private! And so you had to literally eat dust, eat sand just about. And I wasn't listening to the orders. 
And when it came my turn, I was nervous enough already. But now I didn't know exactly what to do because I'd not listened to the orders. And therefore, I did not follow the orders right. And I was yelled at and cussed at by all the drill sergeants, embarrassed in front of everyone, and told to go back in line and go crawl through the sand again and to go do it again. And I, had, I was sweating. I was pers perspirating terribly in the summer of Fort Seal, Oklahoma. My glasses had sand all over them. I was just looking a mess, and my, all my hair shaved off, just, just a freakish looking of, of nature, you know what I'm saying? Because I had not listened carefully to the orders, I was not able to obey the orders. Well, in a much more serious way, we must obey all Jesus' commands. I mean, listen carefully here. Listen carefully, church, to all his orders here so that we obey all his commands. Too many times the church has been attempted to be built by men who've emphasized part of Jesus' commands, but not all of Jesus' commands. For when he says, go and make disciples, evangelism is involved. And baptizing them and teaching them reminds us that making disciples involves discipleship. The command here is not professions of faith that we can count and report the Illinois Baptist State Association, about how many people we baptized. The command here is that we make disciples and we baptize and we teach them. Do you see that clearly in verse 18 in the first part of verse 19? Do you not? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Look at the last part of verse 19. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we baptize. We immerse. We take someone who has been made a disciple and we baptize disciples. We don't baptize babies. We don't baptize unbelievers. We baptize disciples. Those who've been converted. Those who, who by what they say with their lips and what we've observed in their lives gives us confidence that they have embraced the gospel, that they've repented. And so then we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The name, singular. God and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one. The name. They have one name. God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We baptize them. They go public with their faith. So just let me say right now, though baptism will not save you. Blasphemous to say that. Blasphemous to say, unqualifyingly, baptism saves you. Jesus saves you by grace through faith alone in Christ. Baptism does not regenerate you. But let me say this. It is unthinkable to think that you would say that you're repenting and following Jesus, but now you're refusing to follow Jesus in baptism. Total contradiction. You a believer in Christ? You've embraced Jesus? Have you been baptized as a believer? If not, you are in willful disobedience if you've been physically able to be baptized, that is, and you refuse the opportunity, you're in willful disobedience. It's questionable whether or not you're a true believer in Christ. Be baptized as a believer. 
Then it tells us in verse 20, look at the first part of verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So this process of making disciples is to go to them, which implies preaching the gospel to them because they can't be a disciple if they don't understand the gospel. So we go, we preach the gospel, we baptize them, and we teach them. That's even part of the gospel preaching itself, but it's an ongoing thing. This evangelism and discipleship are two sides of the same coin. So teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's not just the red letters in your Bibles if you have a red letter edition. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you is not even just the New Testament. Perhaps over the past close to two and a half years that we went through the Gospel of Matthew, perhaps you've picked up that one of the key words in the book of Matthew is the word fulfilled. The word fulfilled. Jesus claims and proves that his ministry, his coming, is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. So when we teach all that Jesus commands, we teach the whole Bible. We teach that all the Bible points us to Christ. It's an unfolding of the gospel. We interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. So to teach all that Jesus commands is to teach all of God's Word, the whole counsel of God. Showing how it's fulfilled in Christ and showing how it informs us how to live today in light of the new covenant that Christ has brought about by His finished work on the cross. We teach what Jesus commands. We don't teach the Old Testament law. We teach that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law and its implications for us today as Christians. So this morning, teaching requires a context, doesn't it? Uh, To teach disciples. And so before we started the service this morning, I took a quick walk through our Sunday school wing and went past all the empty classrooms. It's sad. But I'm reminded that those rooms are there for a reason. It's simply a context that we have on Sunday mornings so that we can meet together and do what Jesus says to continue to teach one another, to continue to disciple one another. It's an ongoing thing. It's what we do in the sanctuary, this big room on Sunday mornings. It's one-on-one discipleship. It's small groups. It's doing it through Zoom like some of our small groups are doing right now. It's doing this teaching of one another at home with your children. I hope that some of you right now, maybe in the past you've been a little lax and slack on, slacked up some on doing devotions with your kids at home, but I hope, if not already, you're, you're embracing this time to see even, even more how critical your role is to disciple your own children, those in your sphere of influence. So it's time to leave our homes and make disciples of all nations, number one, because Jesus is always in control. And secondly, because we remember Jesus, or excuse me, we must always obey Jesus' commands, all of his commands. And thirdly, we remember Jesus is always present. Jesus is always present. The the gospel of Matthew ends the way it begins. In Matthew chapter 1, we read about the birth announcement, or not the birth announcement, but the Jesus' words to Joseph, excuse me, the angel's words to Joseph about Jesus who will be born of Mary. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, we read these words, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
That's how the Gospel of Matthew begins. And notice how it ends. Look at your Bible. The first part of verse 20. Are you looking at your Bible? Notice what it says. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The second part of verse 20. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Emmanuel, God with us. This Emmanuel, God with us, promises to always be with us. Behold, I'm with you always. This is more than your mom saying to you, Son, no matter where you go, no matter what happens to me, I'll always be with you. That's a wonderful sentiment to have from a loving mother. But this is more than that. When Jesus says, I will always be with you, this is Jesus in you. This is Jesus living in you. And he doesn't directly mention it here, but of course we know where we're going to in the book of Acts. This is Jesus, Jesus living in you by the promised Holy Spirit. Recall what Jesus says again, baptizing them in the name, singular, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The three, we can't, we can't, we're not supposed to, how, how are you supposed to be able to understand an infinite God? The three are one. The Holy Spirit is God. And so when Jesus says, I will be with you always, and he sends the Holy Spirit as he promises in John chapter 16, verse 17, he says to them in John chapter 16, verse 17, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's, you, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. The Helper is the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. So this Helper is the presence of God. A person, not just a presence. Not, he's not the force. You know, he's not, This is not Star Wars stuff here. This is God in you. This is Jesus promising to be with you always by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was with Peter. Denying Peter. Presumptuous Peter. Filled with the Holy Ghost Peter on the day of Pentecost. Jesus is with him. And Jesus is with him and he's standing up on the day of Pentecost and he's preaching to the ones that had crucified Christ. He's risen from the dead. And Jesus is with Stephen when he's being stoned to death. Lo, I'm with you always. Even to the end of the age or to the end of your life. He's with Stephen when he's being stoned to death. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen says, as he's being stoned, he says, he, be, he, be, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the glory of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus was with him. Jesus was with Paul and Silas when they locked him up in prison. You remember that in the, in the prison, the jail at Philippi? Jesus was with them and the earthquake started happening. They'd been singing. Can you hear him singing? You hear him singing in the prison? While I was praying, somebody touched me. While I was praying, somebody touched me. While I was praying, somebody touched me. It must have been the hand of the Lord. They knew that the Lord, Jesus, was with them. So they kept on praying. And they kept on singing. And when the church, when the jailhouse started rocking and the door started opening, they kept sitting. And when the Philippian jailer came in, they started preaching. 
And God opened the Philippian jailer's heart because Jesus was with them. Jesus was with John when he was exiled all alone like some of you are this morning in your homes. Jesus was with John exiled on the island of Patmos by himself all alone because of his faith in Jesus. But we read in Revelation chapter 1 verse 12 then I turn, or excuse me, 1 verse 10, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom of God and patience and endurance that are, was on, that are evidence in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was on that island by himself and listen to what he said. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. <laughs> Amen. On the Lord's day, the day of the resurrection, it, the first day of the week, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet. Jesus was with John when he was alone on the island of Patmos. And Jesus was with the churches that John wrote to. And Jesus is with the church today. He's with you. Listen to what John saw. Revelation chapter 1 verse 12 through 13. Then I turned to see. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And we learn later that those golden lampstands are the churches that he was writing to. I saw seven golden lampstands. And lo and behold, boys, what do you think he saw? Ladies, what do you think he saw? Saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. You know what he saw? Among the churches, the churches being persecuted, the churches being martyred, he saw Jesus with the churches. Oh, what a vision. What a vision of encouragement that was intended to be. That whole book of Revelation intended to encourage the church. Though all hell seems to be breaking loose, hell cannot have you. Because no one is able to pluck you out of my hand and I have not left you. And Jesus is with the church today just as much as he was with the church then. Amen. So as we are confined to our homes, unable to meet together, it is good to know that Jesus is always present. When we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, it's comforting to know that Jesus is always present. What will it mean? Let me ask you this question as I get ready to close. What will it mean in the context of this sermon for you to leave your home to go and make disciples of all nations? What does that mean? What does that do to your comfort zone? What does that do to your physical location? Because perhaps some of you, when the time comes when we can physically leave our homes, the stay of order, home and order is not in place any longer. Perhaps he's calling you to leave Mount Carmel. Perhaps he's calling you to leave the home which you live to go and follow the calling upon your life in another location. What, in the context of this sermon, does it mean for you to leave your homes? As you seek to think about that question, it may be scary to answer or to consider. But as we leave our homes, whatever that may mean for us, isn't it comforting to know that Jesus is always present? He's always present. Every decision I've made in my life, I left home when I was 17 to join the military. And there's been decisions in life since then. I've lived in different places. But every decision, uh, I've always prayed about it and felt like the Lord led me. And 
And all the places the Lord led me, none of it was easy. <laughs> There's always been real trials and stuff. Hard. Lonely times. Hard times. But I've always known that Jesus is with me. He's always been present. And I believe many of you know that too. That you've experienced that in your own life. So why don't we trust Him for the future? Why don't we step out in faith and leave our homes, our comfort zone, whatever that looks like right now, and know that Jesus is still going to be with us because He promised it. He's proved it, and He promises it. Joshua chapter 1, verse 9 says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He's promised to always be with us. I've told this closing story a few times because I like to tell it. <laughs> Sometimes it's helpful maybe, but when I was in the military and overseas and uh, desert storms are getting over and been over just a few months, not that long really, but man, I got homesick. I can tell you what, I wanted pinto beans and cornbread. I could hardly stand it, you know, and tardy eating MREs and I missed my mom. You know, I was just 18 years old. Uh, guys, I remember standing in line to finally get to take a hot shower after three months, or it wasn't a hot shower, actually, finally get to stand in line and take a cold shower after three months. And uh, guys making fun of my peach fuzz on my face, you know, because I was so young. But I, remember, I sure do remember getting homesick, you know. But I remember the day it came across the landline and on the radio that there'd been a ceasefire. And we were going to get to go home. And we loaded up on uh, our five-ton trucks and went down to Saudi Arabia again where we went to originally in a place called Tent City and stayed there for a while. I had to stay a little bit longer and help clean up the, the mess when things were over. But finally one day my, my orders came that I was going to get to go home. I got on a Boeing 747 and, and I was on my way home. Flew into New York City and got a cheeseburger. Boy, <laughs> I knew I was going home. And flew into Fort Campbell, Kentucky on another plane and got off and I could hear the band playing. And I got off on the plane and uh, just kind of in a daze, really. Because I was home, you know, almost home anyway. And, and here come my brother. My brother that I used to shoot with a BB gun and throw cow patties at. And <laughs> he comes running up. Not supposed to come up under the rope separating the soldiers from the family, but he comes running up over the, under the rope, gives me a big old hug. A 16-year-old brother. And there's my mom and dad and my, one of my grandmas. And I knew I was going home. And it was springtime this time of year right here. And uh, I could see the dogwoods blooming on the way home to the mountains of East Tennessee. Pulled up in the driveway of mom and dad's. Patted my dog Duke on the head. Hugged my other grandma. Went up and laid in bed upstairs. And I knew I was home. That was good feeling. <laughs> Some of you experienced things like that, haven't you? Some of you have been in the military or just away for a while. Coming home's good. Should be. But one day, brothers and sisters, there's a homecoming coming. That's going to be a whole lot better than that, ain't there? It says here, these last few words, it says, I am with you always to the end of the age. This stuff is coming to an end. And I'm not just talking about coronavirus. I'm talking about what we sang about this morning. And be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more. Amen. 
That's coming. That homecoming's coming. And so I ask you this final question. Do you know this? Do you know that heaven is your home? Are you just being, let me just speak real quick. I, I can't speak real quick about nothing. But let me just say this. There's too many people are listening to what I'm saying right here, watching this sermon, thinking to themselves that they're going to go to heaven one day. Because they were born in America and they love Jesus and mama told them about Jesus and you know they're pretty good and, and in your mind maybe you're not working you think you're a good person. What's the evidence that you're a follower of Jesus? Jesus said, You must follow him. Take up your cross and follow him. To be a true believer. To be a disciple that we're called to go and make disciples of is someone who follows Christ. Are you a believer in Jesus? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Jesus did not say in vain in Matthew chapter 7. He will say, depart from me to many people. He will depart from me. I never knew you. He, didn't, he, he did not say in vain, many are called, but few are chosen. Be sure you're not a false convert, that you're trusting in Christ. You're a follower of Jesus and not just a sentimental, patriotic, religious good old boy who's on his way to hell because you never hated your sin in your life really and you're not a follower of Christ we'd love to talk with you about that you get a hold of this church and stevefrills at gmail.com look on our website fbcmtc.org you get a hold of us and love to talk with you more about your relationship with Christ but let's pray together right now